So we are in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 40, and this is the start of Paul's second missionary journey. We read at the end of Acts 15 that they were then going to set out, and now Paul and Silas are going together on this journey, as opposed to Paul and Barnabas, who were together in the first missionary journey. So we're familiar with all of that. Let's start to read in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now keep in mind, based on what we have read and learned, Paul and Timothy are making an accommodation, a concession for the sake of their weaker brothers. So that Paul is having Timothy circumcised in order to accommodate, to have a concession for the Jewish believers. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Remember, this is what came out of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, what they had instructed for the Gentile believers as such. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we, and notice this we, this is now where Luke's account in the book of Acts shifts from the third person to the first person plural. So it's very likely that Luke is now joined them on this second missionary journey, right? And so he is is speaking about it as we. And then he says, after Paul had seen the vision, uh, vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Macedonia, which included the cities of Thessalonica and Philippi, is the region of northern Greece today. So what you would see today as northern area of Greece, that's the area that Paul and Silas and the team are going to. And when you read the epistles of Paul, the letter to the Philippians, and when you read the letter to the Thessalonians, right, the first and second Thessalonians, those were written to the believers in this area. That's what comes later. So from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, a port city, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, and Philippi is about 10 miles inland from Samothrace, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, unlike some of the other cities that they went to, they did not go to a synagogue. It's very likely that there were very few Jewish people in Philippi that there wasn't even a synagogue there. 
So they go to the river, they go to find a group of people, they go to see if there's anybody who has some prayer meeting. And that's what they're looking for. And so they went down to the river. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. So, you read that sentence and you think, Really? This is a demon-possessed girl who is making this statement. And you will notice that Satan and evil spirits know who Jesus is. And they know who the disciples of Jesus are. In fact, we'll see a much more explicit account of this in Acts 19 when we get there. But right here, this evil spirit, this demon within this girl is shouting out, these are the men who are following. They're servants of the Most High God and they're telling you the truth. Isn't that an interesting statement? She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. We'll, do it. we'll, we'll, we'll wait for the sermon discussion to, if you have any questions about that part. But when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the Roman-appointed magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. They're trying to appeal to Roman law and Roman governance to try to get Paul and Silas imprisoned. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. 
When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have order, ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. And remember what we looked at in Acts chapter 14, the way that Paul and Silas would have encouraged these new believers in the church, the the new church in Philippi, meeting in Lydia's house, is to remain true to the faith, to prepare to endure hardships, and to appoint and pray for leaders. This is the way that they would have encouraged them. All right, so Acts 16 opens with a reference to Timothy. And Timothy was going to go on and play a very significant role in Paul's ministry and in his legacy. And in Paul's second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your, brother, in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. So Lois, Eunice, and Timothy were most likely converted, came to know the Lord Jesus, during Paul's first missionary journey to Lystra. And in verse 6 through 10, it tells us that Paul and the others went to Macedonia based on the direction of the Holy Spirit and the dream that he saw. And in Philippi, we have the account of the conversion of Lydia and the jailer, others, and then the jailer's household, so on. And there are, of course, a number of other conversions that took place during this period in all these places. We don't have the names of all those converts, but even as it says when they're meeting in Lydia's house, there are other people there, their brothers and sisters. The people are getting converted. What I want to focus on, though, this morning is just two main points about all these conversions. First one is that the conversions take place through a variety of ways. So Lois, Eunice, Timothy... They were converted through the preaching of the word of God, the declaration of the gospel. They were probably aware of the lame man. They may have been there to see that lame man who was healed in their hometown of Lystra when Paul told that man, stand up on your feet. They would have known about Paul being stoned and dragged through the streets of Lystra, left for dead outside the city, and how he miraculously revived. But most importantly, they heard the good news about Jesus. They had come intentionally to hear the good news. They had heard that there was this message of the gospel being proclaimed, and they had come to hear it. And when they heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus, they believed and were converted. Lydia in Philippi believed in Jesus because of Paul's street evangelism. She was just going about her normal day. She wasn't coming to hear Paul. Paul and the others engaged the people there by the river, particularly Lydia and the others, as they were just doing their thing. I don't know what all they were doing at the river there, but they were just going about their day, and here comes Paul and, and this team, and they start talking to them, right? Out in the public, right? It's just street evangelism. 
Uh, some people in Philippi would have believed in Jesus after they witnessed this evil spirit being driven out of the slave girl. And we have accounts of that. It doesn't say this explicitly in Acts 16, but we have accounts of where people witnessed the signs or the wonders. They saw the power of the Holy Spirit manifest and they believed and they would come to know Jesus. The Philippian jailer believed in Jesus because of a supernatural earthquake that takes place and an even more dramatic word of knowledge from Paul. You, you, you realize that in the midst of all that chaos and confusion after the earthquake, the chains are all loosed, all the prisoners are in, able to escape as such. In the midst of all of that confusion, when the jailer could not even see what was going on, and he's about to kill himself, Paul, who's not even physically right there where the jailer is, and he wouldn't have been able to see him, he shouts out, don't harm yourself, we are all here. I mean, the Lord is showing Paul that the jailer is about to kill himself and this is what he should say. And so Paul yells this out and the jailer's response is to bring lights and to come and to talk to them. And his response to Paul and Silas is, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So all sorts of different methods, all different means, all different paths as such that are going on here, but all leading to the same end. The conversion of people so that they would become believers in the Lord Jesus. And what the Bible is telling us, what our missionaries are telling us, what our own testimonies are telling us, is that God uses every possible means for people to be arrested in their tracks and to turn their attention to Him. He is using every possible means to touch the lives of people all over the world. That is the mercy of God. In his mercy, he allows that gospel message to be shared around the world people, to people from all sorts of backgrounds and in all sorts of situations. And that's why God specifically commissions and empowers us, his disciples, to go and make disciples, to go and share the gospel. As Romans 10.4, this is Paul writing later, and Romans 10.14, pardon me. He says, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And so, there they are, the word that is being preached. And as the word of God is preached, people believe they are converted. But I want to make a point here about the conversion of households. We saw in Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius... And his household, those that were gathered together with him, his own family and others, and, but others too, friends and others who had gathered there in that house. The household believed, received the Holy Spirit, they were all baptized. And then we're going to see another example of a household conversion in Acts chapter 18. But here in Acts chapter 16, we read of two household conversions. Right? Explicitly talking about Lydia's household, who believed and were baptized, and the Philippian jailer's household, who all believed and were baptized. In the early 1900s, there was an American missionary, J. Wascombe Pickett, who studi studied what he called mass movements in India. So he was a missionary to India, and he studied this phenomenon of what he called mass movements, and he wrote about it, and he pointed out that the principle 
of urging individual people to believe in Christ worked very well in the United States where Christianity was the major religion and people could become Christians without separating from their friends and families. But he said the one-by-one one method, however, did not work in India among Hindus because if only one person became a Christian, he was thrown out of his family and caste and suffered social dislocation. So Pickett's analysis, Pickett's studies as such, had a great influence on Donald McGavran, McGavran, the father of the church growth movement. And according to McGavran, what he said is, at least two-thirds of all converts in Asia, Africa, and Oceania have come to Christian faith through people movements. And what he describes as people movements is, multi-individual, mutually interdependent conversion. So that each person is exercising saving faith, but it is done in consultation with and along with others in the group. So whether only one person from the household hears the gospel initially, or all the members hear it collectively, the idea here is that there is a strong interest in ministering to and having the whole household come to faith. So in most non-Western cultures, a new believer will face severe persecution and be ostracized from the family and society if they accept Jesus and the rest of their family or household do not. That's just the reality of what they face. So in most of these cultures, as soon as an individual hears the gospel, there is typically a concerted effort to reach out to the family, to reach out to the village where that person is from. And if that individual who is converted is a leader or a head of the household, as the case is with Lydia and the jailer, then they can have an even stronger influence on the whole household or on the whole village. And so there's a definite push in that direction. Right? Today, most people, even in, even in these non-Western cultures, they don't, many people don't live close to their extended family, and people have become increasingly individualistic, right? and they're living very individual lives. However, this principle of reaching the household, that remains valid for us today. And that means that even as we focus on individual salvations and the idea that somebody came to know the Lord Jesus individually, as awesome as those are, as important as those are, we as a church should be praying to reach the influencers, those in that household and the members of that household that can influence the entire household, that can influence an entire community, that can influence an entire neighborhood. We should pray that way. So it's not just the individual salvation, but we would say, Lord God, bring the whole household. Bring all of these folks. And in our modern context, not just influencers in a neighborhood, but social media influencers. You know, we want to reach all these social media influencers too and let them reach out to all the people that they're connected to. But in all of these conversion accounts, as people hear the good news, it is the Holy Spirit that is at work in them. It is the Holy Spirit that is working in the people 
to bring them to repentance. And you know, although the words repent and repentance are not explicitly found in the text that we just read in Acts 16, it is very clear that these individuals are repenting of their sins, they are turning from the way that they were going in, the way that they used to live, and they're now believing in and following Jesus. It is very clear that in all these accounts, these conversions are by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? It was the Holy Spirit that directed Paul and the others where they should go. Verse 6 says that the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching the word at that time in the province of Asia, of which Ephesus was the capital. We know that later Paul does go to Ephesus. But the Holy Spirit says, don't go. Right now, not, not there. Not here, but here. Verse 7 tells us that the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter Bithynia. Instead, the team discerned that the Holy Spirit was leading them to Macedonia. Verse 14 says that Lydia was a worshiper of God. Somehow, somewhere, she had this idea that there was a God and that there was some God that needed to be worshipped. And we'll get into a little bit more about this as we go through the next two weeks about how people may even know about a God but not know about Jesus. And here, but, it's, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Lord in the hearts of these people. And so verse 14 says that she was a worshiper of God and that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Holy Spirit is already at work in the hearts of the listeners. That work has to be there. That work of the Holy Spirit. It was the power of the Holy Spirit or by the power of the Holy Spirit that Paul cast out the demon from the girl. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Paul and Silas were singing and worshipping God in the prison. They were severely flogged. Severe, when the Bible uses some words like this, you've got to remember that it's not an exaggeration. They were severely flogged. They are in, their, their wounds were not treated. They were just cast into this you know, inner cell and things. And they're in an extremely uncomfortable situation you know, with their feet bound in stocks and probably bound with chains as such. It talks about the chains being loose. And so they're in this situation and it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that in the middle of that situation, in the middle of the night, they are singing and worshiping God. That's not, a, that's not just you know, a normal kind of singing. I mean, that takes the power of the Holy Spirit. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that the jailer and his household were saved. At every step, for every outreach, when we share the gospel, when we talk to somebody else about Jesus, we need to be directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Whether we're doing it in person, remotely, whatever, whatever ways we're doing this, we've got to say, Lord, it has to be by your direction. It has to be by your power. It has to be because I'm reliant on your Holy Spirit. Can't be the plans that I make. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says, In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. You couldn't have planned for what would happen with COVID, but the Lord determines the steps. The Lord knows exactly what's going to happen. And we make our plans. We say, Lord, here's my plan. And maybe the Lord will bring some correction. Don't do this, don't do that. Don't go here, don't go there. But sometimes he may not say something explicitly to that. 
We just continue to rely on him for each step because when he says this step and not this one, we say, yes, Lord, and obey. And as we do that, because Paul, in this regard, in this example, as he submits his will to God, as he is receptive to God's voice, whatever plans he has, whatever ideas he has, wherever he says, oh, we should go there, we should go see this church, we should encourage these folks, he's willing to change anything and to go anywhere that the Lord leads him to. And so it is that reliance on the Holy Spirit that enables Paul to say in Romans 8.14, those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, are the children of God. Over and over again, throughout the book of Acts, and especially when it comes to anyone accepting the Lord and being saved, we see that it is the person, the persuasion, the conviction, and the power of the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. Over and over again, the reminder for us is that everything we are praying for, for our lives and our church, requires the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this on our own. We have to be sensitive to and then obedient to the Holy Spirit. Now, when we are obedient to the Holy Spirit, keep in mind that where the Holy Spirit direct, directs us may not be easy. It's not easy. I mean, when, I mean there, there may be a personal cost to pay to obey the Lord to share the gospel. And Paul and Silas were directed by the Lord to go to Philippi. What did they do when they got to Philippi? Or what happened? They get severely flogged and thrown in prison. But through that, there comes that conversion. There comes that household. There comes that fruit that the Lord brings in it. And this, and, and, and Paul, Paul is already familiar with having suffered much on his first missionary journey. Now the second missionary journey. He's going, he's doing, he's being obedient, and yet they endure significant hardships. Our missionaries will tell you, they've had to endure terrible hardships. Things that they were not prepared for. Things that they didn't know how to get through. But it is the power of the Holy Spirit that keeps us moving through that because we are obedient to the steps that he tells us to go. Why do all of this? Why seek to make converts and then to see that those converts are growing, are strengthened, are encouraged in the Lord, that they may mature as disciples? Why? Because in Luke 15, Jesus said that there is rejoicing in heaven over every sinner who repents. Why do this? Why go to the ends of the earth? Why pursue all this for one person, for one household, for small church and wherever nobody's even heard of? Why do it? Because the Lord says that all of heaven rejoices for every sinner who repents. Why do we pursue conversions? Why do we want to do this? It's not because we want to say we had, you know, 10,000 conversions. We had this. I was did this. I preached this. No. Because for their sake, for the joy that they have in the Lord, and for the joy of the Lord himself. You want to please the Lord? You want to bring joy to the Lord? 
You want to have God rejoicing in something? Tell somebody about Jesus. Let them come to know about Jesus. Because the Bible says that when that person says, I believe, all of heaven rejoices in that. So this morning, as we respond to this message, as we respond to what Paul and Silas and the team are doing, and we read these accounts of what's going on in the book of Acts, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, that we respond by preparing ourselves to share the gospel in a variety of ways. And I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention this now again. You may say to yourself, well, I'm not a missionary. Well, I'm not very able or articulate to share the gospel message. And I don't really, you know, I'm not going to these places where people are. I'm not you know, organizing big meetings or doing whatever. But you see, the point that I was sharing about all these variety of ways, it may be just as you're going about your normal workday. It may be that you're thrown in prison. No. May, may not, maybe you're visiting prison. But it may, maybe, maybe you're doing something else. Maybe you're just in the middle of something else that, you know, the Lord just is the, where the Holy Spirit is living in and through you, and you're going about your life. But in that life, when you are prepared, when you're saying, Lord, I want to be sensitive to you. Lord, I want to be equipped. Lord, I want to be empowered. Then in the middle of that life, in the middle of that daily activity, whether by intentional purpose or not, when the Lord says, say something to this person. Turn this conversation from speaking about the weather to speaking about the God who made the weather and all that we see. Somehow, somewhere, that the Lord would enable you to turn that conversation and to be able to share about Jesus. That's the sensitivity. That's the preparation. That's the readiness that I'm saying we need to be prepared, that we need to pay attention to. So how do we respond to the Word of God? We don't just say, oh, great story. Oh, Paul, oh, pretty, pretty impressive, very commendable. No, we say, Lord God, you prepare me. And I may never have any of these kinds of opportunities like what Paul had. I may never see these kinds of dramatic things happen. But in the ways that you tell me to do something, I want to be obedient to that. And I can tell you, I've heard the stories, even this past week even, of people just, someone coming to mind and you call them. Right? Someone that just calls you out of the blue. And last week, Ernest Turner was, Brother Ernest was talking about the fact that he called somebody at the wrong number and then ended up sharing or praying with them or encouraging them. I'm not suggesting that you just randomly start dialing people. But, you know, but what I'm saying to you is that the Lord will give the opportunity when we say, Lord, I, I, here am I. Send me. Here am I. Prepare my heart. Make me ready. Help me to pay attention to this need for conversions to take place, for people to be saved, for people to hear the gospel. And I don't know who those are and where they are and what they will, what they will say, but prepare me to be able to say something. And as we do that, I want to say that we apply. We apply by asking the Lord for specific opportunities. Don't just say, I'm, Lord, make me ready, and maybe in 10 years' time, 
I'll do something. Say, Lord, make me ready. And even though I'm not fully ready, even though I don't know what all to say, even though I'm not, I don't have the past experience, even though I may be a little fearful, give me an opportunity. Give me an opportunity. And the Lord will do it. The Lord will do it. You'll be amazed. It may be just, you know, Micah was telling the story of being out here in the church and somebody pulled into the parking lot to change his tire or something. He had a flat tire or something. And he pulled in here. So Micah went out, helped him, got out some tools, got him to change the tire, and then just shared the Lord with him. You never know where the Lord's going to give you the opportunity. But just pray and say, Lord, prepare me and give me an opportunity this week. This week, give me an opportunity. Just start to pray. Ask the Lord. And he would. And when the Lord gives the opportunities in response to these kinds of prayers, he doesn't give you something that you can't then respond to. Because he's not saying, okay, I want to see how you do. You know, this is a test. Right? Let me see what you do. Right? No, he's saying, okay, I'll be with you. My Holy Spirit is in you. I will give you the words on, in your mouth. And I will be the one who affects the heart of the listener. It's not up to you. You don't have to worry. You're not trying to convince them. You don't have to make a convert. You just simply share. And the Lord, as he's working in their hearts, will use this message that you're sharing to cause them to believe, to cause them to, to receive the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, Lord, your word speaks of these conversions, these dramatic conversions. And, Lord, it tells us that it doesn't matter what the background, it doesn't matter what the context, it just matters whether we, your disciples, your servants, are faithful and obedient to share the gospel. And, Lord, we thank you that when we do that, you do the rest. You change the hearts of the listeners. You manifest your power. You cause signs and wonders to take place that attest to the power and the, Lord, the, the, just the primacy of your word, of your truth. And we thank you for that. And I thank you, Lord, that you prepare each one of us. Father, when we are unsure, when we are uncertain, when we are fearful, I thank you that we can simply pray, Lord, you, you change us. You prepare us. You make us ready. And Lord, when we do that, when we say, Lord, you make us ready, then you give us the opportunities. So Father, even this week, I pray that in whatever way you lead us and guide us and direct us, maybe it is a word of encouragement to somebody who has heard about you already, but is just unsure of how to take that next step. And there isn't a true conversion. They're still remaining in that old self in that old life. And Lord, maybe it is a message, a word of encouragement for them to truly turn to you. Maybe, Lord, it is a person who has never heard about Jesus. Maybe it's a person who has heard about Jesus but has a very wrong idea of who Jesus is. Whatever the opportunity, whether it's a family member, someone in our own household, or Lord, someone that we don't know yet, Lord, we pray for an opportunity and we pray that there will be conversions. 
that there will be people joined to the body of Christ daily. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.